trying to escape oppression is all I know. I know a lot of people who live their lives trying to achieve joy. I've lived most of my life trying to escape oppression. My personal transformation in prison was always through the lens of patriarchy, always from jump. Like I was blessed to have amazing women and non-binary feminists of color as friends and family. That's just the language through which I understood my transformation. I remember I called Patrice. I was in Folsom State Prison and I had called Patrice and I said, yo, I want to organize. And she said, I'm, I'm glad this is who you're choosing to be inside. Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guests are Richie Reseda and Indigo Mateo of Question Culture, a kind of activist artistic art label whose projects support grassroots organizing. Richie Reseda is an abolitionist feminist formerly incarcerated in the state of California and the subject of the CNN documentary Feminist in Cell Block Y, a film that chronicles his journey educating and combating toxic masculinity within the walls of the prison system. Indigo Mateo is a singer, healer, abolitionist, survivor, and co-owner at Question Culture. She's releasing her sophomore album on the label this summer. Indigo met Richie while visiting him in prison, and her partner, 88, also an artist on the Question Culture label, is currently incarcerated. Together we discussed how patriarchy functions in culture and in jail, what the school-to-prison pipeline is and why it exists, how economies sprout up around the prison system and in neighboring towns, how meritocracy has led to a culture of vengeance, and why the prison system is, in Richie Reseda's words, the deadbeat boyfriend of America. I know you'll appreciate this engaging conversation, but first, this. Join authors Camille Maureen and Lauren Roche August 16th to 20th for Wild Serenity at Play with the Radiant Sutras. Camille and Lauren will lead an immersion in deep relaxation and refreshment to help you fall in love with meditation. They'll customize the practice so it flows in harmony with your inner nature. Space is limited, so book now at eslin.org workshops. And now, here's Richie Reseda and Indigo Mateo. So I wanted to start off this interview by asking you each to tell me something beautiful about yourself. <laughs> I am beautiful in every single way. Man, I just brought me back to like the seat of the car. Something beautiful about myself. I am constantly learning from my mistakes, honestly. Uh, learning from when I misspeak, learning from when I act out or, you know, potentially harm other people. I feel like I'm constantly learning from that. I'm constantly like learning from my fuck ups. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. Um, something beautiful about myself is I, I try to be a conduit for my homeboys in jail. I don't know if, if I always succeed or if they would even say that. I'd like to think that, that they would say that about me, but, um, I guess I'm just thinking of the people who I was locked up with. Um, I try to be a conduit for incarcerated people, period. And all my friends of all genders who are incarcerated, but the people who I think about the most are the people who I was inside with. And I just try to be a like a bridge to access for them. Um, and I don't, and, and I don't always succeed. And I don't know, maybe they don't see me that way, but I think that trying to be that way, I, I find beautiful. I think that's a beautiful intention to have. I, I'm proud of myself for having it. What's something special about you? Well, um, beautiful about you. that's great. Thank you for asking that Richie. Um, I'm a dad. I am a, I have a two year old daughter and, um, it's crazy. It's absolutely insane. It's like the hardest, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And um, it's just beautiful to, um, to show up and kind of fail um, at the task of being like perfect parent all the time. Yeah. And my, I'm really getting into my, um, my humility and my, um, my, uh, my imperfections as I reach my, my 45th year. <laughs> but thanks for asking. Nobody will humble you like a two-year-old, too. <laughs> and nobody relates to showing up and failing more than me and Indigo. So we are three P's in the right now. Okay, great. Well, we're on equal footing here. Yeah, so just kicking this off, Richie, you were criminalized from the age of 11 or 12 within Los Angeles. I was hoping you could you could kind of foreground this, this interview by talking about the LAUSD and the policies they employ when it comes to using police to criminalize students and touching upon the school to prison pipeline. Yeah, I, I really appreciate this question. I'm fascinated also, I'm fascinated here what Indigo is going to say, because I feel like we grew up in such different environments. And I feel like the way that um, 
yeah, the way that boys of color and, and girls of color are kind of put in our individual like patriarchal troughs to be sent out to be young patriarchal participants is, is fascinating to me. But, but um, yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles during the zero tolerance era of policing, the, like which came up out of the broken windows theory of policing, which was this idea that if you heavily criminalize or the, the language the police would use would be heavily punish children for breaking windows, it will quote unquote stop them from climbing into those windows when they get, go old, get older. So I just grew up in a time when um, Los Angeles was building the Los Angeles School Police Department, which is one of the most resourced police departments in the country. It's separate from LAPD, it's separate from LA Sheriff's, it's its own police department and they are armed and they are on schools. And what that looked like for me was things that otherwise would have been an issue of breaking school rules became an issue of breaking laws and, and getting caught up with cops and courts starting when I was, like you mentioned, I was 11 years old the first time I was put in handcuffs for playing too rough on the schoolyard. Um, and then I was arrested again when I was 13 for leaving early from school. And again, when I was 13 for quote unquote vandalism. And I put it in quotes because I was actually scraping the dirt off of my desk because my desk was like so gross that, that like I could scrape the dirt off with a key and it was like the ribbon of dirt film. And as a 13 year old, I kind of thought that was cool slash gross. So I was just doing it and I got arrested for that, you know? That, yeah, I, I was just seen as a threat from, from before that time, honestly. I was kicked out of school when I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. I had to transfer schools when I was eight years old. And I think back to that all the time, like that, the, in terms of the systems that we're building and, and what we're teaching children about themselves when we treat them that way. I was shown when I was very young that I was the enemy. So by the time I was 14, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, I embraced it. It's really interesting. I, I love what you said, Richie, about um, what it teaches kids about themselves when they are handcuffed, when they are marginalized and criminalized in that way. When, when, when kids are a lot of times arbitrarily subordinated and punished, it does show, show kids and I think a lot of kids of color that you are, you are the threat, like Richie said. Um, your safety doesn't matter. We're trying to make sure that you're not a threat to someone else's safety. The, the message is very clearly you don't matter and your voice doesn't matter. Yeah, Richie, and some of the stuff that I've heard you talk about, you do a great job in sort of talking about how these rules that appear to be arbitrary, you know, how they kind of get set up. I'm, I'm real interested to hear you talk about how kind of budgets and capitalism play into this state of policing where there is a, an enormous police force dedicated to a school district or LA County itself is home to half of the 130,000 people in prison in, in California. Well, I do. I think the first thing I want to say is we've had huge victories in shrinking the prison population in California, and it is now under 100,000 for the first time in 25 years. So the went literally from the time I made that speech, I feel like you're, you're referencing a speech that I made last summer during the uprisings. Um, and I was saying there's 100, I said there's 130,000 people in prison and, and half of them come from LA. And though it's still true that half of people in state prisons come from LA, we have been able to get the prison population down significantly even just since then, which is just a wow. huge victory to, uh, two things I wanna say about that. One, it's a huge victory for the movement and the organizers who fight to free our people every day. Two, 30,000 people came home from prison and nothing happened. So how much do we really need prisons? I don't even remember the, the original question. I just felt like that was an important point to make. Oh, so important. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up. And um, yeah, in, incredible, enormous congratulations for that. Basically, the question was sort of around how budgets and capitalism play into creating um, a state of affairs where there's an enormous amount of policing around, for example, school districts. Yeah, I, I think that, that capitalism mechanizes people. It tries to make us as much as machines as possible because humans are, are messy, especially in an organizational level when you're dealing with thousands and thousands of people and it's hard to deal with humans. So it's easy to try to make us like machines. And our current ideas around public safety aren't about how do we make a world that's livable for everybody? How do we make a world that is safe for everybody? It's more about how do we disappear people who are interrupting the status quo? And the status quo is arbitrarily determined oftentimes by legislatures who if, if anybody who's ever done policy work, I mean, me and Inigo have been doing policy work uh, with Michelle Justice for years. If you've ever done policy work, when you step into the office of a representative and you try to get them to accept a bill or deny a bill, 
the first thing they ask you is, well, who opposes it and, and who's for it? Not what is it going to do? What's the science behind it? But who is going to chew me out? Who do I have to be scared of if I sign on to this? Because they're playing politics. They're, 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 talk, they're thinking about constituencies. They're thinking about who's going to get them reelected or make it hard for them to get reelected. And it's by those arbitrary standards that all these laws that we're supposed to live and die for in this country are made. And people say things like, oh, we're a nation of laws. And, but they're not even laws that are built with human beings at the center. Like, like I said, it's more about mechanizing mm -hmm. society, making it easy to run, and most importantly, making it easy for those who are privileged and on top. So from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense that the ruling class would invest so much in police because now they, have, they essentially have a publicly funded security squad for their investments. Mm -hmm. They get... In, in the case of LAUSD, they get money based on the test scores that they, they get at the end of the year. And they get money based on people showing up to school and the, be, the emotional well-being of children doesn't pay the bills. So it's easier to put people on guns who can, who can with guns on campus, who can out violence any violence that happens there and who can just disappear folks who are not going with the program. And that's essentially what police, that's the job of the police system, not just at the Los Angeles School Police Department, but all police departments. To just disappear people when they're too complicated. I mean, I can only imagine how cynical you must have felt uh, as a teenager with having been arrested for such incredibly minor offenses and having to deal with cops. I imagine that just being around police constantly as a minor how did you how did you feel about that presence in your life? Um, I didn't notice it because you would have to not be around cops to understand that they that they don't need to be there. Like I was talking to my partner the other day. He's from Toronto and he's from like the hood in Toronto. And I was telling him some story and I mentioned a, a story about me being at school. And I mentioned like then the cops came and he was like, the cops came to the school. And I was like, the cops work at the school. And he was like, they have guns. And I was like, yes. And he was like fam, we don't have no armed police in Canada. Like, I can't even fucking imagine that. Like an armed police officer walking around se second graders. Like second graders and guns don't go together in other places. But where <laughs> I went to school, it did. So we didn't even second guess it. And I want to say one more thing too. The way that they justified it. When I was young, because I grew up in the Valley too, like which, which it's, it's a suburb of LA. I grew up in the working class part of the Valley. They're also like upper middle class and very rich white areas of the Valley. They would give out these pink papers every Friday that said all of the quote unquote crimes. And we can talk about why I put crimes in quotes. It, it's not because terrible things don't happen, but it would have all the quote unquote crimes listed out that happened in the prior week. And it really kept us in a state of fear. You know, there was listing kidnappings and shootings and all these things that happened. They do things like that to try to justify themselves because they present themselves as the only answer. Um, and then they remind you of the problem over and over, but they, they stifle our imaginations from other forms of solutions. So me as a kid, I didn't, I didn't really question it, though I wasn't down with it. Like I was never one of those kids who was like, I want to be a police officer ever, personally. Because the first time I interacted with the cops, I was four years old. This cop came to my preschool and gave us a little spiel about don't talk to strangers. Then he left, put a tissue on his head and some sunglasses and a trench coat, came back in and said, walked right up to me and said, do you want some candy? And I said, absolutely. And he took me to his car and we went to the police car and he handed me a lollipop when he drove in circles in his police car and he brought me back. And my mom worked at the preschool and it was like this embarrassing moment for my mom where they were like, Richard left with a stranger. And I was like, no, I didn't. This is the cop who was just here. Like, what am I, an idiot? Like, he has a tissue on his head. But that idea that like, oh, like you say you're trying to save me, but you actually just tried to trick me and embarrass my mom. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't down. I wasn't, I, I, so for me, that, that was my experience with cops. I, I, I never saw them as protectors of the community. I always experienced them as outside of the community. And like, um, but I didn't have the forethought to start questioning why they're on campus and start, until I started getting politicized in high school. I was gonna ask, like, I feel like Indigo is somebody who survived serious violence. I'd be interested to hear, I've never asked you before how you related to the cops. Cause I really appreciated that question, Sam. And I never thought about that, Indigo. Like, how did you relate to the cops before the violence that you experienced and after as somebody who didn't grow up being criminalized in the way that I was? Hmm. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, the harm that Rich is referring to is I was raped in 2015 and I pursued, a, you know, a prosecution and at least went to a detective to figure out like, who is this person and how do I get justice? Um, and it, it made me really question what is justice for me and what is justice, uh, what is this justice that the system is, is talking to me about? I guess the way that I experienced the cops in that in that way was like intimidating. Kind of in the way that, I don't know, I guess like your homeboys would like, like pump you up to like do something together, like harm someone together. Like it was kind of like, are you ready for this dude to go to prison? Like, are you ready to fight him? Are you ready to like fight him in court and fight his whole family? And like, and, and, and they kept referring to me like I wasn't on point enough. They were like, no, what color was the car? Like. What was he wearing? Like, you have to like tell us all these details as much as you can remember so we can put this person away. And I remember being there and being like, oh, I came here for the wrong reasons. Like I came here so I could like get a stipend to go to a spa and see a therapist. <laughs> like, like I, I came for like that type of justice. Like I came to talk to someone. I came to see if like, if there's anyone that can talk to him and, and does he even know that he raped me? Like, these are the questions that, that are like, I'm thinking of. And so when the police were just kind of just like trying to tell me that it didn't happen and, and kind of like pigeonholing me into different stories, I'll never forget, I, I, I told this man my story um, and he was supposed to, I guess, be the intake person and I had written it all down. And then I was told to read it to him. At the end, at, at the end of telling my story, he said, well, I bet you'll never do that again. Wow. And I had the same exact reaction. I was so confused. I was like, wait, did I say something wrong? Like, did, does he not understand what I'm saying? Um, but it just, it shows you like the, the, the culture of victim blaming, um, but also just the culture of the police not responding to violence, mm. but reacting to violence through punishment. Mm. Um, right, right. I, I needed a true response. I needed a community. I needed um, a system that would work for me. Um, but instead, the system saw me as something it could work. And, and, and I, I saw myself get be tempted to go into that, um, that spiral, go into that guidance that the justice system offers, mm. um, the guidance of, yes, just punish this person. That's what you should be doing right now. If you, if you care about yourself, if you respect yourself, this is what you'll do. How did you how did you two meet? I'd love to hear the story. So I I met Richie um, through kind of hearing how dope he was at music. His wife at the time uh, was working with me and she knew how eccentric and musically, you know, inspired I was. And she was like, you would love my my husband. You would love Richie. And I was like, okay, people don't usually say that, but I'll like, I'll meet, I'll meet him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I was working at the Ella Baker Center at the time, and um, we were working on um, multiple campaigns to stop mass incarceration and, and multiple policies. But I met Richie the, the first day, and we just hugged, and, and before I knew it, we just started, like, I, I feel like I started singing, and he was just, like, on the table, like, making a beat. The visiting room just turned into, like, a studio real quick. And we just connected. And so uh, after that, we, we kept hanging out. I kept visiting. At one point, he asked, like, would you sign with me as a part of Question Culture? He's like, I know I'm incarcerated, but like, you know, there's a plan to get out. And, you know, I really believe in your music and I'd love to like help you make your project. And I was like, um, honestly, yeah, sure. And I, I went off of, um, literally off of a vibe because I, I, I saw how talented he was and how dope of a person he was uh, and is, but I really, on a deeper level, what made me say yes so quickly was just the, the care that he, um, that he took with my, my craft, um, that he wasn't like assuming things about my craft. He was asking questions about my songs. He was asking questions about me as an artist. And it was humanizing. Mm -hmm. And I had a humanizing experience with him around mm -hmm. my music um, in those visits um, in, in a place where dehumanization is all around us. Mm. Um, Richie's probably getting um, the, 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 the phone because James called me a couple times. Okay, that's okay. Um, 
Okay, I'm back. So my best friend who is Indigo's boyfriend and is the third artist in Question Culture with us, he is in prison and he is trying to call us both right now. And us just denying his calls back to back was not a vibe. So I just asked him to call another one of our collaborators. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, no problem. Yeah, so Richie, I've heard you say everything I do now, you know, including your, your label, et cetera, I started in prison. And I find that so in- inspiring. I, I want to ask you, like, did you feel desperate at first when you, when you were facing your sentence? I mean, t- talk about that. How are you yeah. able to get into the, eventually get into the creative mindset when you're, you're locked down, you're in this dehumanizing situation? For me, yeah, yes, I felt desperate when I was in prison. And I, I felt desperate um my whole life and and oftentimes still do actually i really appreciate this question because it's only recently that i stopped feeling desperate and i actually didn't really know who i was outside of desperation and i i'm like currently in real time trying to find new forms of inspiration that are not based in desperation because um trying to escape oppression is all i know i know a lot of people who live their lives trying to achieve joy. I've lived most of my life trying to escape oppression and help other people escape it as well. And pulling from joy rather than pushing from oppression is something that I've only been trying for like the last year. And now that it's kind of working, I, it's it's messed with my sense of identity. Um, but yeah, what's, what's always been most important to me since I was young was, or at least what I felt was most important to me and thought was most important to me was my art. And then when I got politicized and I was 14, it became the movement. And um, very shortly after getting, because I was making beats and and making music before I got politicized. So when I got politicized, I was like, I'm just going to make music and films and clothes and all the things I love that serve as a bridge between my homies in the streets and my homies in the movement, But, but really largely people in the streets and people in the movement in general. And that's what I thought about every day. Even when I was in the streets doing bullshit, I was like saving up money to buy a studio. I had, like right before I got arrested, I was running a record label and a clothing line. And here I am literally 10 years later and I run a record label and a clothing line. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, you also um, do, you also do incredible political work too. You know, you're leaving that out. Yes. Well, I think that my political work to me, it's all the same. Because my outside of initiate justice, which is very policy focused, we are going to change this law and people are going to get out. My political work has always been cultural work. Like the patriarchy stuff, that the patriarchy workshops we were doing inside was about changing patriarchal culture. And that's what our music is about. And that's what our clothes is about. That's what everything we do is about. So whether it's a workshop or a bill or a song or a movie, for me, it's the same because the goal is to end revenge culture and end patriarchal culture, which is the the... the the seed of revenge culture. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I want to hear about this kind of this transformation from like receiving your sentence and going into jail and obviously, you know, feeling like the world is upon you to getting to a place where you can teach, you know, about patriarchy within the jail. Cause there, there's, there's definitely a journey there. Well, let me, let me back up to, to give context to when it's to that. So first I was raised in this patriarchal culture as a little boy who, who believed it. I believed that I had to be violent to be a real man. I believed I had to have money to be a real man and, and be emotionless to be a real man and therefore a valuable person. Um, so that's how I started acting. And like I said, this all took place during zero tolerance when we were being heavily criminalized and, and still are. So by the time I was 14, I was failing out of school. I had all D's and F's and in came these two people who, who were brought in to kind of talk to the failing students and their names were Mark Anthony Johnson and Patrice Colors, And they became my mentors. And they walked in and they wrote the words mass incarceration on the board. And Mark Anthony said, who in here knows that you have a higher chance of going to prison than you do of going to college. And that really got my attention because by the time I was 14, I had already been, like I told you, I'd been arrested like five times by the time I was 14 years old. So I was like, that rings true to me. I always knew I was gonna go to jail. I remember being like 10, 11 years old being like, I'm gonna go to jail eventually. How, why wouldn't I? What am I special? Everybody else does. Like, um, anyway, I got when I got politicized, Um, by Patrice and Mark Anthony and the organizing work we were doing, that is what gave me kind of, I knew how to, I was taught how to organize. Mm. I was trained in how to organize. So five years later, when I'm 19 and I get locked up, I knew I wanted to organize in in prison. I didn't know how or what, I had a lot to learn. 
I was reading a lot of bell hooks because my personal transformation in prison was always through the lens of patriarchy, always from jump. Like I was blessed to have amazing women and non-binary feminists of color as friends and family and a partner and community. So that's just the language through which I understood my transformation. And I remember I called Patrice, I was in Folsom State Prison and I had called Patrice and I said, y'all wanna organize. And she said, I'm, I'm glad this is who you're choosing to be inside. And when I find a couple years later, when I got down to a medium security prison where they actually had like self-help groups, I saw, I saw it. That's when I was like, okay, here's, this is the place where we can do it because this is the place where we're allowed to be alone without any cops. And we can, and if we can stand up here and talk about how terrible our crimes were, we can stand up here and talk about how terrible patriarchy is or how terrible the prison system is. Um, so to, yeah, I just, I just used the training that I was given as a kid. I mean, how the hell did you even know what to talk about? Like, did, cause did it was you, me, cause I lived it. Cause I was a little patriarchal boy. So I knew what little patriarchal boys felt like and thought like, and I just knew, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it, it was it was the language that bell hooks gave me but it was my lived experience like i knew what i knew when i saw someone get stabbed in prison i know the dude who was stabbing him i know why he was doing it, it wasn't because he was a monster it wasn't because he was different than me it's because he was exactly like me and he was willing to do anything to show that he was a, a real man i just knew that i knew what that was like to be willing to do anything to show you're a real man i was willing to die to show that i was a real man i was willing to kill to show that i was a real man all, all the way through my teenage years so i was like if you're gonna give me a mic and a room full of dudes we're gonna talk about this what's up y'all in toxic masculinity you become a real man by doing three things athletic skills by dominating in that sense by objectifying women and by having money. We probably never heard anybody say anything like, well, he objectifies women, therefore I feel like he's a real man. Nobody says that. But instead of saying objectifying women, what are some of the things that we hear in the community where we're talking about, oh, he's a real one because he objectifies women? He's a pimp, he's a player, he got hoes, he got bitches, right? These are some of the ways that we uh, prop a man up. Same thing with violence. We might not say, oh, he's willing to be violent, therefore I respect his manhood. Nobody says that. But what people might say is, oh, he's with the bullshit. He's with it. What's, what else? He got hands. He's with the business. He got hands. He's down. Watch out, he ain't no punk. He's not a punk, or he's Watch a good out. dude. As individual men, we buy into this stuff. But when the whole culture around us buys into this, including women and all that, kids, when everybody in the society is buying into this, or most people are buying into this, we describe that culture as a patriarchal culture. So that's the, so people often say, what's the difference between toxic masculinity and patriarchy? Toxic masculinity is what I'm doing just with my masculinity on the day to day. But when everybody on my block, everybody in my city, everybody in my state, everybody in my country is feeling that to some level, we have what's called a patriarchal society. Relational Mindfulness, Power, and the Deep Feminine, an experiential and restorative retreat for women, August 30th to September 3rd, with Deborah Eden Tull. You'll explore how meditation, relational mindfulness, and other rituals can yield more compassionate, wise, and embodied practitioners. Register now at esalen.org workshops. Yeah, so I want to hear a little bit about how, like, talking about feminism and talking about patriarchy functions within a prison. Like, how does how does patriarchy react when it's sprinkled with feminism? And how open were how open were your the people who you're in prison with? How open were they to learning and changing? My experience is that men in prison are are just as hesitant to. Talk Thank about you. That's exactly <laughs> what I was gonna say because when I when I first watched that documentary. My, I was watching it with my partner at the time, and I was like, um, yeah, I feel really good that these conversations are happening. Like, not only in prison, but, like, needs to be happening out here, too. Yeah. Like, I, I show like I was showing people, all the men in my life, like, get it together. These dudes are getting it together. Like, you know, and, 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 and it doesn't mean that these, you know, that those dudes inside were perfect at it. 
yeah. mean, like you see, um, you know, in the documentary, 88's like, nah, okay, forget all that. Who's like opposed to this? Like who thinks this is dumb? Who thinks like, who's not buying this? Mm. And, and they talk about that too. So I feel like, I mean, I, I'd love to hear Richie's answer, but I just feel like that um, through their facilitation and, and getting at each other in a non-domination way, um, in a way that sees each other, I feel like that, I see that as the key. And I'm like, that's something that's needed inside as well as outside um, between, you know, between men and, and, and between all genders, really. Yo, I'm so, thank you so much. That's so affirming to hear you say that, Indigo, because um, yeah, that, that it sh makes me feel like we're on the right path. Because to me, it didn't feel very different than talking with men on the outside of prison. The differences were this, patriarchy in prison is like patriarchy all the time. Like there's no, okay, I'm gonna go to my homegirl's house or like a beauty salon now and be in like a feminine space where I know I can't say certain shit, you know? It's just all patriarchy all the time. Like there is no, that moment of like, I know this is kind of fucked up because I would never say this around my mom. That moment never happens, you know, for years. The visiting room though, the visiting room, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On their yeah. PZQs. cues. Even in the visiting room, I mean, people do be, they, they get some act right when they go to the visiting room, but even the visiting room, I feel like is a very patriarchal space. And tell me what your, your experience is. You've been to one more recently than I have. You just saw 88 last week, but. The visiting room is a very gendered space where I feel like prison patriarchy sets the tone for people on the streets, not the other way around. Prison patriarchy sets the tone for the visitors, not the other way around. Men acknowledge each other. They do not acknowledge the women who you're sitting with. You know what I'm saying? Stuff like that. Like there is a whole patriarchy code of how- You're right, you're right. And I think I, I like defy that in many ways. And, and there are some people who do just defy that because of who we are, but you're totally right about the overall culture. That it's, it's on us to act different, not- not it's not an opportunity for other people to get to act different yeah i mean i just yeah it's your personality to walk in and just give somebody a hug in the visiting room and just blow up the whole patriarchy culture of visiting rooms but people that that is very much the culture and i, I was at five prisons over the course of seven years and it was the same way every place it was like you don't talk to to the women they're sitting with like that can that can start violence you know so anyway um yeah if how did people respond? To be honest with you, Sam, they laughed me out of the room. Literally, not figuratively. Like I was walking out of the door as the room was erupting with laughter and I felt like a dumbass. And I walked back to my friend Charles and I said, you know what, we gotta start our own program. Because I had given, the first time I did it, I gave a patriarchy workshop in someone else's program. At a 45 minute slot, they cut me down to 20 minutes. And then they laughed me out after <laughs> and they were like making fun of the word. They're like, what is he saying? Is he saying patriotic? Like, what is this shit? But at the time I didn't really know what, what to do yet, Sam. I was still, I was, I was having like a, I was leading a political education workshop and like, this is what patriarchy means. This is what misogyny means. This is what the gender binary is. And dudes were like, what? Like, get out of here. And we didn't learn for years that the goal was not to teach people terms and to teach people political frameworks, but rather to model vulnerability. And, and that invites others to do the same. And when we started doing that, it really started working. Right, 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 right. So kind of like the, the, the other side of this coin, which I find so important, which I've learned a lot about and in listening to other interviews that you've given I want to hear you talk a little bit about how, how capitalism functions kind of alongside and within the prison system, like how large economies sprout out, sprout up around the actual prison municipalities, how the business of imprisonment kind of fits into a greater national economic framework. Yeah, um, I think people really oversimplify the prison industrial complex and they think that they they hear that the 13th Amendment to the Constitution says slavery is illegal except for as punishment of a crime. And then they just assume like, okay, the purpose of prisons is to get people to work for free. But it's not that simple. It's, it's, it, it functions much more like human trafficking or kidnapping in that it's like, once we have you, now we can make all kinds of money off having you because we get to sell you things. We get to make money every time we move to you to somewhere new. We get to exploit your labor, but most importantly, we get to sell you things. <laughs> and, we, and the people yeah. who are paying into that, or, or I'll say one more thing, you talked about the economies that spring up around prisons. Um, a lot, there's a book by Ruthie Gilmore called Golden Gulag, which is the economic story of the prison boom in California. 
And I really encourage folks to read it. I had to read it a couple of times before I even got it because it's dense, but it's essentially, it essentially talks about a bunch of areas of California that where the economies were dying, old war towns where they used to build planes, but now there's no more wars and where they used to grow food, but now the land is all tore up and you can't grow food. They built prisons instead. And because the prison is there and now they need people to work the prison, then you have, well, now you need a Walmart. Now you need a gas station. And then because of the visiting economy, now you need gas stations all up and down the freeway. And I'll say one more thing. SC Justice did a report, or was it EBC that did that report, Who Pays? The Ella Baker Center did the Who Pays yeah. report mm-hmm. and found that the prison system makes all of its money from the pockets of women of color. It's, it's all coming from, the prison system is a deadbeat boyfriend to America. Like the same, the dude that's on some woman's couch who just smokes weed and plays video games all day and she's taking care of the kids. She's keeping the whole show running. She's paying for everything. That Need is the money prison. for every damn thing. I mean, talk about assist. You know, like how much money are you paying to talk to 88 on the phone, to write, to drive up there five hours, five hours back? Like they are literally, their whole business model is based off when women like, like you, like Indigo. Yeah, this is a kind of like a world that I came in and I was I was embarrassed because so many women who have been living this life of supporting um, someone who's incarcerated you know, are the ones who showed me the ropes and the ones that in order to have a relationship with an incarcerated individual, like you have to have a a minimum of, you know, something to give, something to put up in order to see them. It's not free to maintain a relationship the way it is out here. Like you have to like put forth effort. You have to put forth um, like scheduling, like inconvenience, change, change your life around. At, At every turn, there's something, you know, you can't bring... You can't bring damn near anything into the visit. If you got, you know, sometimes if you have extra hair, added extensions in, you have to take it out. Um, you can't sometimes go in with certain shoes, like the clothes that, that we have to wear. I, I, I realized like, in or, like when I first started dating um, my boyfriend that I was gonna need to start like budgeting for our visits, budgeting for us to be able to talk to each other. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is like $50 on the phone per month. That's not that bad. But once we got closer, it was like, oh, now it's like $100 in the month, like each month. So I'm like, okay, so now that's $100. And then I was like, I need to go see him. So the visits started, you know, coming. And I was like, okay, well, I need a car. So I was borrowing people's cars. And I was renting cars. And I, like, at times I, when I lost my licenses, I had to do different things. There was one time that I actually rented a U-Haul in order to go see him at the visit. And some people who read know that um, when you rent a U-Haul, it's by the mile. So they'll be like, $25 a day, but like you have to go in within this range of, of mileage, which I just went completely out of because I went from Oakland to Soledad, which is like 200 miles or more. And that was, it was a hefty, it was a hefty fee. But um, it, it kind of speaks to this theme that we're talking about with capitalism. It's like, it's expensive to be poor. Like the, the more the more oppressed you are, the more disadvantaged you are, the more expensive it is to do normal things, like see your loved one, um, like show up at a visit. It, it would be more economically friendly if people could take their own food into a visit or if people could like buy normal food that isn't super like overpriced. And so bring back to Richie's point is like, it, it's an opportunity for us to give them our money. And at first I'm like, fuck these people. I don't wanna give them my money. But when I look across the table and I see my loved one who's hungry, it's like, yes, take my money as as quickly as you can, because yeah. um, I want him to have as much as he needs to literally survive. So it, it was definitely like a culture shock for me coming in, especially when I, I seen women with mad money and I felt so embarrassed because I didn't have any money. I, I actually wasted all my money getting there. So I literally had no money. And all these women, I, I remember coming, coming in with like thick, you know, you know, one, $1 bills, like just thick, like wads of money. And I, I just felt like, damn, this is how, this is how they're supporting their family. Mm. Like sending him off with like water, Gatorade, you know, like chips, whatever, like snacks. And it, it, it it's, it's been really sad, like me assimilating to this because it's not like, you know, Richie was like, how do you explain like a fish? You know, how do you tell a fish what water is? Yeah. But for me, and I, I never grew up in that. So so learning it was like, 
oh hell no and they want to charge me for these calls and they want to charge me for this it's like it, you see how deeply it's a scam and how deeply it leaves people in generational mm -hmm. generational debt um, and there's no way that you can accumulate wealth so many of the, my homegirls who have incarcerated loved ones could have accumulated so much more wealth for themselves if they didn't have to cut through all this red tape financially um, for their for their loved ones. I mean, and again, it's not only people with romantic partners; it's people with their sons, it's people with their, you know, their uncles, their brothers, their sisters. It's definitely a whole other world, and there's there's a lot of money to be made off of incarcerated loved ones, mm -hmm. and it's so sad how the prison system literally feeds off of that opportunity. Up late again at the end, we ain't even got no mutual friends. They kind of hot, so I'm answering. I took a little flick, tell me why I press Now I'm all the way in. Talking middle names, 1.30 a.m. I'm saying little things and a little memes. Wanna see my face, I'ma pull up on them. Okay, I think I'm down for that. You grab a snack in my pack, it's a snack. See to the back, we can slap my new track. You made me laugh and I might try to mag. Last night I waxed when we matched, don't be cap. We could go back to the back, to the back. I'm staying fancy with that, it's a wrap. Is this an act? I think it's a trap. Let's talk about you guys' level of optimism around achieving reforms in criminal law. I want to hear about some of the work that you do with Initiate Justice and just, yeah, your mentality about achieving a change in how this nation thinks about race and, and crime and mass incarceration. The, the only way that we're going to win is by building collective power. And there's a problem where people who are actually in prison or used to be in prison or have family members in prison who are actually directly impacted by punishment policy um, are not usually the people who are empowered to make policy around public safety. Um, we're, we're counted out of the conversation. We don't have a voice in the state legislature, which state legislatures are, are where most prison policies are made. So Initiate Justice went out to solve that problem. And we started it in 2016. I was still inside at the time um, working on the first thing we worked on was a ballot initiative uh, that ended up becoming Prop 57 and had people worked on it all throughout the state. We were part of a huge statewide coalition and we helped pass it. And because of that, I was able to come home almost two years early. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I Policy is very, very important in when you're doing prison work because policy is the matter of if somebody's gonna be able to talk to their family is dependent on state policy. If what you can eat is dependent on state policy, if you can eat is dependent on state policy. And most importantly, when you come home is dependent on state policy. So Initiate Justice organizes people who used to be in prison, who had family members in prison and who are currently in prison to change public policy. We've changed a bunch of laws and we have like 40,000 members in prison, hundreds more on the outside, hundreds of organizers in prison that I truly, I believe in initiate justice with my full chest. I think, I believe in all the great abolitionist work happening around the state, but I really believe by the same way that I was trained when I was 14 years old and someday five years, six years, seven years in the future, I was able to use that training to start doing the work of initiate justice and the work of success stories, changing patriarchy. We need to create those lanes for all 40,000 of those incarcerated people. And then the system doesn't stand a chance. So that's, that's what Initiate Justice has been doing and we've been winning. Um, in terms of what you were saying about like the attitudes towards prison, I, I think that the US has a very violent culture, is a very vengeant culture. Um, I think it's closely connected to this, I, this idea of meritocracy that we really value in the US of like yes. you get what you deserve. And we really wanna trust authorities to be um, the arbiters of making sure people get what they deserve. And I think that's why people are offended by, by some people are offended by our work as abolitionists because they're like, you're, you're trying to interrupt the, you get what you deserve pipeline. And we're like, um, yes, because if we wanna live in a world where everybody gets what they deserve, I mean, let's build that world. So I robbed some stores, maybe you didn't, but maybe you've cheated on someone, not you, Sam, um, or Indigo, but just, you know, the proverbial you, like maybe you cheated on someone or, or you lied. Does that mean you should get cheated on? Does that mean I should lie to you? 
Maybe you shoplifted. Should I come to your house and steal something now? If we want, if everybody should get what they deserve, let's make sure we keep tally of every single harmful thing every human being does ever and make it our business to get revenge on them. But if that's not what we want, then we shouldn't do it to people just because they're poor people and they're people of color. The work that I do with Initiate Justice is um, I lead healing circles for people with incarcerated loved ones. Um, I help coordinate circles for people with uh, people who are formerly incarcerated. Um, and the reason why I think this pours into um, the policy work so seamlessly is because if I'm gonna go advocate for my loved one, I have to like believe in myself. I have to um, believe that I'm credible. I have to believe that what I'm saying is legit. And so often the system just douses us with shame. Like it just, it covers us in shame. Whether you're someone who's been incarcerated and has been told you don't deserve to have a voice, you don't deserve to have a life. Um, or if you're someone who's supporting an incarcerated loved one, uh, being told, yeah, you're just as criminal as this person, like to us. You are also a subordinate in this space. You're not a civilian uh, in the way that you would like to think yourself to be. So within that culture, there's so much toxicity there. There's so much shame. Like I remember I would, I would leave visits and just want to cry and feel so embarrassed because like all the cops said was like, move your shoes. And like, it made me want to like cry because of the way that they're talking to me, like the way that they're talking at me. The whole experience made me hella sensitive at, at first. And it, and it made me realize like, oh yeah, I need to heal from this. Like I can't just go on, like this isn't affecting me. And so many people live like years and years and years in their families with this shame of incarceration, of subordination. With IJ, you know, we've created a lane, at least in, in the capacity that I'm involved, like with um, the healing circles, we've created a lane for people to come and be like, you know, this is what I'm going through. Like my family is saying this about me, you know, my community is saying this about me. And within our circles, we're able to be like, we get it. We get it. And I know that we're still going to fight for our loved ones and we're going to still garner hope within each other um, and within our communities because we can't let that light go out. Once the light goes out of the families and the loved ones and the people who are closest, if that light goes out, then we really do lose. I want to kind of pose this to both of you. What, what is it like to talk with me and, and probably like a majority white audience for this show about issues around race and, and crime? Uh, I can start, I guess. Speaking to white audiences about race, about criminalization, um, interesting, because honestly, like, it, sometimes it'd be a, like a mixed bag. Like, sometimes I feel like when I go out of my way to say my story, people, white people, but people who just generally don't have that experience will be like very receptive and very like, having a moment in real time, like, oh, my my consciousness is being expanded. And it's like, I have grace for that moment, even though like that moment can also like take up space, but I have grace for that moment. Cause I'm like, I get that moment. And, and, and that has been me in so many times where I'm just like, oh, I didn't know the world worked that way. Or I didn't know things happened like that. Um, but I say it's a mixed bag because then there's other times where you really do put yourself out there and, and you say your real experience and you say, you know, you speak your truth. And it's, it's met with straight up uh, gaslighting. Um, it's met with gaslighting, it's met with being trivialized. And so that's something that I just like, a lot of people divest their energy from even the possibility of being met with that. Mm. So I think like, it, it's cool that there's a place where we can talk about these things here on this podcast. So it's cool that people can like listen to this podcast and kind of like peep into our stories and choose to like continue to listen or not. Mm, thank you so much. Yeah, I think that, um, what is it like to talk to, well, I, I, for me, talking to white people about abolition is not very different than talking to other communities because the only difference is sometimes there's more kind of natural leanings towards abolition with black and Latinx people in this country in particular, because we've suffered so much violence at the hand of the police that, um, you know, if I walk into a room full of black people and I'm like, fuck the system, most likely one person in there is going to be like, hell yeah, fuck the system. <laughs> um, as opposed to, you know, the system was really created to protect white people. It, it was created by white people for white people. And we were always supposed to just kind of be in service to the system that, that supplied luxury for, for white folks. And we have fought to be like 
in the picture as opposed to just holding up the picture of America. The, but so that's a difference. Like I understand why 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 white people love the police so much. Like if the police are like nice to you and protect your property and like come collect people who are wigging out by your house, now you don't have to worry about them anymore. Like I understand why somebody would be like, hell yeah, I love the cops. So that that's just what I keep in mind when I talk to white folks about the police is that we're having two, di- we're, we're talking about, we, we have two different experiences of this institution, completely different experiences. You are the protected, I am the threat. So therefore we, we're, we're gonna relate to this differently. But the thing that's the same amongst a lot of folks, regardless of race is, um, disbelieve in revenge. They'll say they believe in punishment, but that's just a fancy word for revenge. That is the same. And that's why I like to focus on that so much. It's not because racism isn't a huge part of the system, but everybody knows that. If you don't acknowledge that, you're just in denial and that's between you and your God or you and your therapist. I'm not here to talk to you about your denial issues. <laughs> Everyone, if, if, if you live through 2020 and you don't think racism a thing is, is a thing in, in the United States, you need help that I cannot give you. But so let's, yes, it's racist. Everybody knows that. But the, 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 the revenge part, my father, who is Black from the projects, grew up a victim of redlining, believed in revenge, believed in the police, believed in the prison system. It's written into, you know, the religions that, we, that the colonizers gave us. Like the, these ideas of revenge is good and an eye for an eye. And that is kind of the, 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 the deeper, con- I don't want to say the deeper conversation because racism in the, in the prison system is a problem, but I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in the conversation that's not happening. Plenty of people are talking about how the police are racist. Everybody knows that. I, I don't need to have that conversation. I want to talk to people about revenge culture. And that conversation has looked similar regardless of people's race in my experience. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So let's talk about question culture. It's reason for being and the your, the musical sensibilities that kind of enliven the, your label and sort of who your, your inspirations are uh, in terms of art and music. Yeah. So um, I started question culture in prison. <laughs> I'm blessed in that. Like, like you had mentioned, everything I started, I started everything I do now, I started with shit that I did in prison and question culture is one of them. And it really came from, like I said, when I started organizing all my homies in the streets were not coming to the the marches. They weren't coming to the teachings. They weren't coming to the events. And I was like, these y'all would benefit from these probably the most. You're the most disenfranchised people I know. And you would probably benefit from this the most, but you don't want to show up because, you know, if something doesn't make cultural sense, we call it corny. It doesn't hit the cool points, then it's corny. And um, I'm not saying the movement is corny. The movement has been cool. Just look at the Black Panthers. Like we've been cool. But I think that my goal was really to make music and food and, or not food, um, but make music and fashion and films. I don't know why I said that. I can't make food. You're hungry? Yeah, maybe. Um, that, that would be, be a bridge for people in, in the streets to get these sensibilities. Because, you know, I learned patriarchy from Christianity, from my father, but from rap music. Like rap music gave patriarchy swag. I want to be really clear. Hip hop did not make up patriarchy. Africans were taught patriarchy by colonizers. And then we made patriarchy swag as fuck, which is a problem. Like the way that we were able to take our coolness and give it to patriarchy and now turn on the radio, you're going to hear an amazing song that's patriarchal as fuck. So when I say amazing, I mean sonically, creatively, like it's going to have all those things, but it's going to have these undertones of patriarchy that are actually programming us to harm each other, most, most of all harm women and non-binary people. So I was just like, yo, could we make something that's just as dope, but the undercurrents don't contribute to patriarchal culture. In fact, they contribute to a, an abolitionist world, a feminist world, a world where we all can thrive. And it doesn't have to be like, respect women when you walk to school. Don't holla at the car, cause that ain't cool. Like, it don't gotta be like that, bro. Like, I should go though. Don't say that because your album is actually dope. And if you compliment me on what I just did, no one's gonna listen to it. <laughs> you lose all credibility. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, it don't gotta be like that. I was like, what if we made dope shit that was abolitionist and, and feminist? And that's why when I met people like JJ88 or I met people like Indigo, I was like, Yes, like y'all, y'all, y'all get it. Like, let's do this together. And by the time I, I got out of prison, we had a, a label with three artists, in, including 88 and Indigo. Yes, yes. I love, um, I love being a part of the Question Culture Squad because it very much feels like we get to like 
spin, you know, spin the culture that we want to see and, and kind of like really talk like our conversations become art become conversations like does it make sense like it's like we really like are alchemizing and like manifesting what we want to see so it's like there's like countless nights where me and richie will be like talking about some deep issue um and, and then we like have an idea at the end of the conversation where it's like that's a shirt or it's like that's a song or like that's a program or whatever you know yeah, and yeah. you know the responsibility that it takes to say i'm going to create something in the world and I'm going to I'm going to hope that other people follow suit, whether it's a song, whether it's an event or a venue, entertainment, even like a TikTok, like whatever you're putting out there, it takes some type of audacity and it takes some um, agency. That's actually, you know, the opportunity that I have right now with Question Culture is pushing out my my second album, which is called Single Player. And it's about that agency and it's about that like main character energy that we get to have. Um, as people, but specifically, I'm talking to like people who have lived with any oppression that has told them that you're not the main character. Anyone who's lived with an oppression that has told them that, you know, you should sit on the sidelines to someone else's story. Allowing myself to tap into my own true voice and the shit that I wanted to talk about was what this project is to me. And, and in this project, I talk about abolition. I talk about queerness. I talk about like, you know, true love. I talk about like, I've been able to do some groundbreaking things in my own life through my art and question culture. Yeah. Um, and groundbreaking in the ways like, you know, actually tapping in with the story that I want to tell, not the story that I think people want to hear or the story that I think will be most palatable to others. So there's three songs of the project out right now and every Monday you can expect a new one. But yeah, so I've just been hella blessed because I'm surrounded by you know, people who are thinking about abolition, but people who are also thinking about like, what are we excited about art wise? You know, and like, what do we want to create more of? Yeah, you know, over the course of this conversation, you guys have mentioned 88 a couple of times. And I was just wondering if you would like to like presence him and, and talk about what he brings to the label too. Hmm. Oh, am I not on mute? I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, 88 is cool. He's an amazing artist. He's probably one of the most prolific storytellers. I've ever met. He's extremely humble in his artistry. He's also an activist. I, I don't know what what I should really share about him. There's like so much about him. Um, but what he brings to our label, I think is like, just like fierce artistry, like high art, um, and really thinking about like Pan-Africanism, thinking about like talking about blackness, talking about what it what it was like to grow up poor and black. And then and then also he has this really amazing um, poetry about him and how he, you know, sees the world. So he also champions like concepts like worthiness and, and struggling with belonging um, and, and finding one's own voice in the world as well. So his voice is just extremely needed. Like we need him him free. Him and Richie and me in a room, it's always just feels like so many different bases are being covered. And I'm just, I'm really grateful to even like to know 88 through, um, through this art, because that was the thing that like, you know, originally was like, oh yeah, y'all would mess with each other on an art tip. We mess with each other on a deeper tip. <laughs> yeah, we haven't been in the same room together since like 2017, which is wild to think about. But, um, damn. Yeah, I met, I met 88 in prison, in the library, doing poetry. Um, a mutual friend of ours had brought together a bunch of poets to like write, a, put together a poetry book. The first thing that he spit, I was like, oh, this dude, he's it. Like, And we just have been very close friends ever since then and have created together ever since then. I, I just appreciated that he, you know, 88 was sentenced to 40 years to life when he was 15 years old. He, he killed a young man. Um, when he was 15 and he was sentenced to 40 years to life in adult prison. I remember meeting him and like, I'm very suspicious when I meet men. I just don't, my expectations are just very low. So, and that's as a man, like, it, it's just like, so I was like, okay, like, we'll see if he's actually dope. Then he ended up being actually dope. And I was like, okay, well, we'll see if he's actually accountable for the murder he committed. Then he ended up actually being accountable. And I was like, okay, well, we'll see if he's like patriarchal as fuck or if he has any feminist bearings whatsoever. And that one took a little more work, but he did have feminist bearings though. <laughs> and, <he's, laughs> and, and that's not, for, you know, and, and we've learned a lot from each other in that regard. So yeah, I, I appreciate you asking about him so that we can present him. It, 
I thought about putting him on the podcast, but I, I didn't want to throw him into a situation. Yeah, I appreciate that question. And then to, to, the, to the other question about like QC and what it is we're trying to do, like we're just trying to make it normal to be abolitionists and feminists, honestly. Like just make that shit regular. Like we, I would never use the word abolitionist or feminist on anything that we make. We try to show and not tell. Just mm-hmm. like uh-huh. if you listen to the radio right now, you're not gonna hear here's the latest patriarchal song from like, it's not, they're just going to call it a song. Like, and they're not going to say patriarchy on the track. They're just going to show you patriarchy very clearly. So that that's, that's what we are trying to do. And we don't just do it in what we put out, but we do it in how, how we do what we do. Like, I appreciate so much that you centered capitalism in this conversation. Cause I think so much of, of people right now want to challenge capitalism and don't know how. Because I don't think they know what capitalism is. I think people think capitalism is just the market, the the market economy of individuals being able to privately buy and sell things. But that's not capitalism. Capitalism is a social mandate that says the purpose of the economy is to make as much money as possible. And that it's better for if you are looking out for your own pockets, that's what's quote unquote better for everyone. That's what capitalism is. And that's what companies do. And that's what record companies do. Record companies exploit the fuck out of artists as black artists and artists of color specifically and we just wanted to build a non-capitalist way of making media and music so we're artist owned and we when we sign somebody we give them a part of the label itself and in all of our policies and procedures we work in transformative justice in our clothing line we're a partial owner of a clothing line called for everyone which is all produced by formerly incarcerated people out out in michigan we're owned by the workers, by the employees. It's not that hard. Like if you want to be anti-capitalist, give, pay people an equity. End of conversation. Give people an equity stake in what they make. Do not exploit their labor for your equity. Boom, you just became anti-capitalist. And that's, we, so it's not just what we put out into the world, but it's how we do what we do. And I'm really proud of it because one of my proudest moments with QC, Indigo got this song off her first album called YQYG featuring an, another one of our, our very close collaborators, LJ, Lalo Jimenez. And the song's about like street harassment. And anyway, I got to go speak at this middle school that's actually in, in the area where I grew up. It's around the corner from the projects that my dad grew up in. I played them, I played the middle school kids, the video for YQYG, which is also like a mini documentary about street harassment. Then we got to like talk about it after and the conversation after with these babies about street harassment and patriarchy was just, it was just everything. They were singing the songs, they got the concepts, they already, you know, these 13, 14 year old girls were already experiencing street harassment and could speak to that. And these 13 and 14 year old boys got to hear that as a problem in real time. When I was 13, nobody told me street harassment was a problem. I could tell, but like, there was no space to hear my peers, 12, 13 year old girls be like, yo, this is how I feel when this happens. And Indigo's music made a space for that. And then when I got to talk about how we built question culture, we got to show them a whole new pipeline through life. Cause all we know is the go build an empire. I can't tell you how many interviews I've done where they're like, tell us about the empire you built when you got out of prison. I'm like, nigga, I didn't build, no, I'm not an imperialist. I didn't build an empire. We're building collaborative paths to sustain ourselves by doing what we love and make the world a better place. And I can show you, you can thrive and not be capitalist. And we got to show that. And you can, we got to show a bunch of 12 year old boys that it's not okay to street harass and show a bunch of 12 year old girls that your experience is valid and give them a place for healing and show them you could go out and make music and be lit and not have to be capitalist and exploit people all through a song, all through a fucking song. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why we do what we do. So good, so good, so good. Thank you so much. Yeah, so just to wrap up, I'm, I'm curious if people have listened to this interview and are inspired by what you are doing, how can they kind of like jump on your coattails? How can they assist in, in what you're doing? And also just please plug the hell out of like, how can people find you and, and understand uh, all, the, all the important, interesting, creative, exciting projects that you guys are spearheading? Yes. Well, for Question Culture, you can follow us on Instagram at question.culture. And then to hear more of my music, look me up, Indigo Mateo, uh, on Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, anything you listen to music on. 
and my Instagram is Indigo Mateo. And QuestionCulture.com has all of our stuff. Like whether you want to get plugged in with um, our upcoming projects or Richie, me, whatever you want, just QuestionCulture.com. And then Richie Reseda, that's his Instagram. Mm -hmm. Richie, you want to plug in anything else? I mean, yeah, no, I, I really, I like sending people to Instagram, not just because we're trying to clout chase and get a bunch of followers, also because of that. But in addition to that, in addition to clout chasing, we also just send people to the Instagram because the link tree has everything. You can get to Initiate Justice's work, Success Stories work, Question Culture's work, um, For Everyone, the clothing line we we're talking about, all these music videos. Like, it's just, in this day and age, Instagram's the easiest place, I think, to go. And either of our Instagrams, at Indigo Mateo or at Richie Rosita, you can folks can get linked with any of the work we're talking about and, and hopefully become a part of it. Cause we're always, you know, we're trying to a lot, to, you know, some of these are, are base building power building organizations and the more the merrier. So please like hit us up and, and tap yes. this has just been such a pleasure to just feel the creative power and your ability to kind of like explain and deconstruct kind of complex systems has really been helpful for me. Yeah. I feel like I was just having a moment in real time occasionally. <laughs> Yes. Right. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Discover your electric body, get in tune with the power of your voice, and liberate your human instrument with sound therapy pioneer Eileen Day McCusick and musical facilitators The Brothers Corin in their workshop Sing the Body Electric. It's September 17th to 19th in Big Sur. Sign up at eslin.org slash workshops. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Michelle McCrary and Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. Indigo Mateo's song IRL is featured at the 40-minute mark. If you're liking the show, please, please subscribe. And if you want to reach out, send me an email at voices at Until next time, be well. <laughs>